Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Karen Williams, and you're joining me for part two of our interview. I've got a client at the moment whose ex was doing the whole love bombing thing with being very generous, and he had a lot more money than she did, uh, was a multi-millionaire. Um, and after a couple of weeks, when he was insisting on buying things and taking her out, she was starting to relax into it, thinking, gosh, this is amazing. And then instead of being using the positive, as you've described, he got very um, upset and started to withdraw from her. And she was like, well, what have I done? You know, I, I don't think I've done anything. And he said, so I need to talk to you and made a bit of a deal over this. And then he sat down and said, look, I think you're taking advantage of me because I have a lot more money than you. I think you're sitting here and you're taking advantage of me um, and it doesn't feel right. You know, it's all one sided. And obviously, you know, at the beginning, she'd be like, well, I'm happy to pay for things. And he had said, no, no, I'm going to look after you. And then all of a sudden it turned. So she felt, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to start paying for things because, you know, I don't want him to think I don't care. But she really wasn't able to live that lifestyle. But even so, she was still paying 50 percent of bills when his kids were older. So she had a, a young son who was two or three and his kids were 10 and 11. And so there were three of them and only her and her very young child, who obviously wasn't eating that much. When they go out to restaurants, she would pay 50-50 from then on. And now that wasn't done in a nice way. It was done in a, in a way of saying, oh, I think you're taking advantage of me and I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, you know, because I do have more money than you. Maybe that's why you're with me. And that planted such a strong seed for her that for the rest of the relationship, she was struggling financially just to keep up. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they do. And and it's things that are said in, in such a way that, you know, that they feel ashamed of themselves. Uh, you know, I have an, another lady who her partner would say, you know, oh, I love that, you know, even though, you know, you're that size, you're, you're choosing to wear those kind of clothes. It's nice that you feel comfortable in your body, that you'd still wear, you know, things like that. And then it'll give her belly a bit of a squeeze absolutely humiliated her made her feel terrible and you know she then changed her her clothing so he didn't have to say you're not allowed to wear that anymore I don't want you wearing tight things anymore he actually couched it all in compliments you know that's great how confident you are and and destroyed her sense of self you know like what an awful thing to say and I guess it's it's very hard to prove, though, isn't it? Because if you take that and you go, say, to the family courts, God forbid, and you say, well, he said this, you know, for someone looking at that from the outside, I mean, it, it is very hard to say, well, yes, that's coercive control. So that it is very hard to prove, isn't it, in the family courts? I think that proving coercive control will be far easier than proving physical violence actually 
I think, you know, we've got to remember that it's not just going to be that one compliment and, or, you know, pseudo compliment. It's going to be a range of different behaviours that will impact her in such a way that people will usually be able to see and provide that history of someone who was very confident and social and, you know, doing this with their life to someone who withdrew from her family to, to, who stopped going out, who stopped pursuing her own goals and interests, dropped her job, you know, didn't pursue any studies any, anymore, um, lost self-esteem, ended up with, you know, the, what you, you will see in a person is this total change in character where she might have had some level of confidence at the beginning to someone who has absolutely none and who generally hates themselves. And where does that all come from? And a good clinician, and if that, you know, and what we're hoping is that there will be family violence experts involved in, in this is really good history taking of what happens to a person and what are the types of things that have happened throughout the relationship. So not just one insult that he said to her, but, you know, text messages of him telling her to come home and monitoring her emails and, and the fact that the, the spending would generally reflect a person who's only buying household things you know groceries that kind of thing and very little personal items whereas he will be buying stuff with that he wants as he likes and and you can often see that in the on the in the bills you know that he's got big purchases of things that he likes and she's barely had a haircut in four years that kind of thing there's so many different ways we're going to be able to gather information and you know, if you've got a woman who's who's following a trajectory of, you know, finishing school, starting studying in one thing, and she's pursuing a career, and then suddenly it all stops, and all of her social, you know, connections have all gone, and all of her family can verify that she just, you know, stopped contacting us, and her friends can verify it too. You could actually then use all of that as well. Then you're trying to prove a whole range of behaviours. You're right you need and you said something really interesting there if there was an expert involved in the case because I think if there is a domestic abuse expert someone that really understands it and is properly trained uh in it and doesn't have any bias to different organizations you know if you get somebody in there that truly is a domestic abuse expert then obviously it is more obvious because they understand what the signs are I mean the signs of um, you know, for example, going through an abusive relationship can also be the signs of someone that's been alienated from a parent. So, again, you've got to get the right expert for the right case. Right. And you've got to have that because you know, the, the judges, the lawyers, the barristers, you know, many of them are not trained in it at all, let alone enough. And if they've got their own biases, that can also impact the case too. So I think it, what you said there is really important that we get experts in the family courts. I don't know about in Australia. I mean, I know there's a lot of hope that that will happen over here in the UK, but it's not here yet. What, what are your views on that? Well, I think that there are, are experts in all of our communities and they're the women that have experienced it. If, you know, it is like a playbook, isn't it? Every, you, you would know with all the women that you speak to, their stories are so similar. And 
I think that, yes, we do need the experts right now because we don't talk about it. We don't have the language around coercive control. We don't have people who talk about it and understand the descriptors around it very much at all. But I think that's only because it's fairly new to the discussion, you know, public discussion. But once you get to know it and once it starts to be the conversations of many different people and there's, you know, training of the police force, training of doctors, training of psychologists and social workers, I think it's not that difficult to spot and that women themselves will spot it too. It's if we don't ever talk about it, if we, and as I said to you before, we've just totally focused on the one tool that a coercive controller uses, which is violence. We've just picked on that one thing, which not all of them use, but we've only decided that we'll charge people for that one crime. And we rarely charge for thing, you know, for any of the other stuff. We don't, you know, no one gets, gets a jail sentence in Australia for monitoring somebody's email or not allowing her to have friends, that kind of thing. So we've got an entire system and a culture of people that just don't look for it. So yes, we need the experts now, but really that's it's not rocket science once you talk about it. You you know it now. And how you know it's not that hard, I don't think. I, I don't think that it's going to require that long for there to be a, a huge increase in awareness. But that increase needs to be legislated. I don't think it will happen just by conversations. I think it has to be where it has to be a legal thing so that all the lawyers must know about it so that they can address it. You know, when if they've got a client that's, you know, wanting to prosecute someone for coercive control, they need to know what the legislation is so that therefore they'll start to get to understand it. And when they represent women, they will know what questions to ask the more they do it. It's just a lack of practice. I mean, we don't seem to have trouble of identifying bullying in the workplace, do we? Which is a similar thing of where you've got a power imbalance. If you've got a boss who is, you know, exerting power over that person because he can make or break that person's income stream, that employee is always worried about their job because they need that job to pay for their bills, to look after their children, to send their kids to school, to feed and you know their family. So that boss has so much power over them that they can't report their boss very easily, can they? So we offer them whistleblower protection for that reason. We would recognise a boss taking advantage of that power differential. We have a lot of workplace bullying laws but we don't have any recognition of the power differential in domestic relationship at all do we even though it's usually the man that has that financial control over her and who will earn more and who is holding children over her or holding her family members over her I mean you said that I mean it's usually the it is a gendered issue really this I mean I know we've been talking a lot about it happening to women but obviously it can happen to men but predominantly the cases that we see are are against women um I I noticed the other day one of my coaches I was training uh one of my my trainees to become a breakup and divorce coach and she was really excited because her daughter who's only 11 had come back from school with a sheet of a4 paper which described what the title was what is coercive control 
And there was a whole list explaining all the signs of coercive control. Yeah, and she's 11. And she came back and she was saying to her mum, look, you know, and they were watching a movie and she was picking out things. She was going, oh, mummy, is that coercive control? Because it says that on my list from school. And I thought, gosh, this is amazing. This is where the change needs to happen. And like you're saying, Karen, rightly so, it needs to be a change of awareness, but also within the, you know, potential you know, victims of abuse coming through, you know, so the younger women looking at these things, learning these things will be a lot more aware of it and therefore can protect themselves and avoid it, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I've seen with some of my patients who, you know, I'm treating for a different thing, but then they, you know, go on to have a partner, they meet a new boy and they're telling me about them. And then, you know, within a week or two, she, you know, she says, oh, you know, I'm just thinking about one that I spoke to this week and she said, oh, you know, um, he seemed all lovely at first. And then, I, you know, when I didn't call him every day, he'd start, you know, ringing and ringing my phone over and over again. And I was like, okay, this is not okay. And then he turned up and was saying, I'm going to kill myself because, I, you know, I don't think you're, you're, you know, you're there for me enough. And instead of feeling what she said, she would have normally felt guilty and felt oh, he must really love me if he wants to kill himself over me. And all he wants to do is talk to me. That's why he keeps ringing. She was able to see that this is really unhealthy and a sign she needed to end that relationship. And she did. She ended it straight away when he started bringing in suicidal threats. And it the relationship was able to end completely in the two-week period he gave up because you know, he was able to see he couldn't control her the way he had intended to. He obviously got, was planning to have that kind of controlling relationship, but she was not able to be made into a victim. And that's why I think it's so important that we have these conversations, we talk about it as much as possible, and we educate women about it so that they are not sort of moulded into this, the patriarchal idea that it's only that physical thing that matters. Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. Because it, it is so unfair to even try and pretend that a woman going through a domestically violent relationship is concerned about one bruise, you know, or one one day that he pushed her, that that's the only thing that characterises the relationship. Any woman in a domestic violence relationship will absolutely say that, it, you know, the bruises heal, it's all the other stuff. 
that has destroyed them, you know, their ability to make decisions. The, the, the walking on eggshells bit is the bit that stops them from being able to think about anything else other than how to prevent their abuser hurting them or, you know, getting angry and using whatever tactic it is that he does tend to use over her. So if it's the children or, you know, money or whatever it is, she's always playing this game of trying to catch up with what what is it that's going to upset him today and living in that space where you're always trying to preempt his emotion preempt your abusers you know good mood or bad mood and try to control it when your life becomes absorbed like that you can't experience joy you can't experience your own needs and wants you're just you're living sort of moment to moment waiting for the next time he blows up at her Bringing this back, Karen, because I mean, what you're saying is is so interesting. But it comes back to with the police that you know this is people like this are attracted to positions of power where they have access to control and asserting their authority because of the role they're playing. And obviously, not all police officers are like that, but you know people are attracted with that personality disorder to being a judge, maybe a lawyer, a barrister, maybe a police, you know, politicians, you know, positions, CEOs. You know, because they're very charming, it's easy to, to get into those positions as well, as you talked about earlier. But I guess, you know, looking for these people in society and being aware of it, you know, and being educated on the signs is going to help us. So, you know, rather than, you know, I don't want my listeners to be thinking, oh, my goodness, this is a really scary place to be, because there are ways to spot the signs. There are ways to take your control back and if you are in those situations when they're seeing someone in their life for example you know that is is very toxic like that and is attempting to control what can they do to get out of those relationships that that is the eternal question isn't it because we would ideally say walk away from these people like they are dangerous they don't know how to love you and they don't have that capacity they're they're void of that ability to truly connect and truly empathize with their partner and there are many people who are like that in this world and ideally you say go to the police and get help go to you know that your doctors and get help and go to the law courts and get you know in order to get away from him but the systems aren't there to help these women are they and so trying to get out of them, it is very difficult. I'm constantly trying to help women get out of it and women that do want to get out of it, but actually are not able to because there aren't the assistance available to them. So it is, you know, important that it, I think that the focus is on prevention and maintaining that ability to have that financial control to be able to, you know, plan the that a life without that person, because a lot of the time he has convinced her that he she is a nobody and she will never be able to manage without him. They really love to hone in the idea that she's helpless, hopeless, and she's unable to survive without him and she will never find anybody else. And she's a fundamentally flawed, broken human being. And if you get to that point where you know you're recognizing that this is their problem not yours you're already halfway there you already you know you've you've done the the hard yards the hard bit is get is recognizing that you're not the problem 
And that's where we come in with trying to teach people and put it out there. So it's more that, you know, we've got to get in there much, much earlier because if you're in that position where you hate yourself and you think you are worthless and unable to survive, you actually can't navigate the escape then. And you do need to, you know, you do need help, I think. I think getting, you know, someone who is, has expertise in family violence who can help build you up and build up that strength that you're going to need because you're in panic mode all the time, the heightened anxiety, because inevitably, you know, you're going to have a level of trauma to be in those relationships. It's, you can't escape it. You are traumatised at that point. If you're constantly living in fear, then your trauma response is activated constantly, constantly waiting. So to try and plan an exit strategy around, it's, you know, next to impossible, if not impossible. If you can get help with trying to calm that, you know, calm your body down and actually make those plans of escape, getting your ducks in a row, as we say, you're going to do a lot better if you've got some assistance in terms of, you know, helping you recognise how traumatised you are and managing your anxiety. It's very hard to tell somebody to calm their anxiety down when they're living with a perpetrator because you don't really want those people to let all their guards down. They need to be aware that they're living with someone who's trying to destroy them. So I think it's really good advice, getting your ducks in a row, trying to see where you can get some financial support. I would also suggest reaching out to your local domestic abuse charity to get some support because they will be, uh, they will have contacts in your local community as well with the police, the police that are hopefully the safeguarding team, the team that actually are trained and have much more knowledge of what abuse is and how it works. So, I mean, there yeah. are, there are things you can do. Um, and being really out. open everyone you can you know start telling your doctor so that they can write it down in in their notes and there starts to be a paper trail tell anyone tell the the kids teachers at school tell your kids to tell their teachers what's happening at home because then again if you're talking about the family law court family law court are going to say you know a lot of the time oh you you're the one that's saying that there's abuse. So it's you're planting these ideas. But if the child tells the teacher and the teacher then says, oh, this child has reported this to me, then it's not her at that point. It's the teacher who has made the, the report. And so I, I often will tell women, don't you, you, you know, feel you need to be the one to redress it if your kid starts telling you about the abuse take your kid to a doctor and let them report it fully to the doctor or to their teacher tell them to talk to the teacher tell them to talk to a psychologist but get it written down by somebody other than you so that it can't be used against you later on yeah that is good advice and the thing is with family courts once you get into that system it can be very traumatic yeah as, as we've discussed in other episodes going through the family court system but it's very traumatic for children to see one of their parents being dragged through the court system by an abusive other parent because you know, that kid's in the middle. It's traumatic. They can see the pain. They can see the fear, the terror in a lot of cases. 
they feel maybe it's something to do with them if they could do something differently a lot of kids are unable to express how they really feel maybe they're too young or they've been you know trained by the abuser not to speak out and just to cope and manage so you know it can be traumatic on kids can't it have you seen this with your clients look this this process the family law court as you said incredibly traumatic and the thing is for her even her own lawyers are often not representing her properly even her own lawyers are telling her don't don't talk about the abuse you know even her own lawyers are saying I want you to only say this and nothing else and she's thinking well hang on that's no not the whole truth that's not everything and because it doesn't matter as much to her own lawyer and he will often he or she either sex the lawyer will not necessarily represent her story properly and the independent children's lawyer may not be representing the child's story accurately so this woman is going through a system where she is having to double check and triple check her own lawyer who should be representing her 100 correctly then double checking what the the independent child lawyer is saying and whatever psychologists that they've gotten to report on the child's behaviour and then obviously address what his lawyers are saying. So it is this awful situation where she's worried about her child's safety, her child's life and her own safety and trying to do that and having adjournments and trying to find the money to do it all, to come home and try and parent after doing all of that, when you're on high alert throughout that entire process, to ask a woman to come back and just be, you know, mother of the year or even just to function is, it's so impossible for her to do that. And of course, a child is going to notice that mum is absent, you know, mentally, that mum is worried and, you know, her mind is somewhere else, that mum is exhausted, that mum is up at night reading through, you know, court documents, that mum is checking every letter that comes in the um, letterbox and shaking to, to see what it's going to be or scared of every phone call or mum jumping because she is going through one of the most difficult things a woman can ever go through. Apart from the relationship itself, like the relationship itself might have even been easier than this where she's risking her child being put in the hands of the abuser without her being there to protect that child. And we cannot underestimate the huge psychological impact that it has on the mother and therefore will have, have on the child. And often there's financial issues too because if she's got to go to court all the time over and over again, what employer wants to keep someone like that on? You know, her job could be at risk. And how can she spend all the time, you know, taking her kids to after-school activities if she's in and out of court? Yeah, and there's also the insane amount of paperwork. And, yeah, it just is the most stressful process. But it is, at this present time, enabled by the family courts. And it's very hard to get out of that system once you're in it. And again, for all the things we've talked about, which is why it'd be great to have more experts, you know, real experts, not self-professed experts or biased mm. experts in the family courts who really are a trusted source of information that can have a, a disassociated view of these cases and really start to spot the signs and give their professional opinions. I just did want to say, you know, that everybody in the system 
that the public system outside of her is being recruited by the abuser. The abuser is recruiting the police officers that are involved, teachers, the social worker, the lawyers, the judge, everyone is being manipulated. And most of those who are being manipulated are not aware of it. They are thinking he is the credible witness. He is the one who is charming, has his wits about him, who's very calmly saying, you know, I don't know why she wants me not to see my child. And she's the one, you know, anxious and frightened and, you know, trying to get it all, you know, doing everything right. And she, you know, they paint her as a crazy person because they have been completely bought in and groomed by him. And until we teach the judiciary and medical system, cycle, you know, allied health, everybody that we are all able to be recruited by an abuser, we need to be able to see that, you know, see that the person is manipulating you and not take the abuser's words as face value and start to really take more of a history of what's happened within that relationship before, which I just don't think that they they do. They want to wipe out everything that hasn't ever been reported before in the family law court. They say, well, you've never reported that stuff before. It's not related. You're only bringing that up now because you want to, you know, you want to win this court case. You're, you're strategizing, you're being manipulative. So they deliberately say things from the past shouldn't be talked about, but that's actually what needs to be talked about. Oh, such good advice as always, Karen, such good advice. And, you know, shining a light on what actually is happening right now, hopefully will lead to more awareness and some positive changes, you know, over hopefully not the long run in, in the near future. But thank you for everything you do and all the work you do in the campaigning. You are amazing and inspiring and I know you're helping a lot of people out there as you have helped my listeners today so thank you so much for being a fabulous guest Karen oh, thanks for having me Sarah that's it for today's episode do head on over to Twitter and follow Dr Karen Williams to find out more about the amazing work she is doing and I look forward to you joining me on my next episode That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.